I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right, Q, today we're here with uh, a great friend of mine, a, a, a dude that I get to spend uh, usually one time a month with in our, in our YPO forum. And uh, outside that, I, I love getting together with this guy outside as well when we can. But uh, my buddy, Bill Ryan. Bill? Welcome, buddy. Welcome to, well, welcome to Ditch Digger CEO. Thanks, G. Now Quentin, we, good to see you. We're, uh, we're glad to have you here today, bud. And uh, I, I know your story um, pretty well, and it's a great story. That's why I got you on this, because your story is one that needs to be told. Uh, young entrepreneurs, young business people, and heck, even older older entrepreneurs like ourselves. I mean, the more, the more I hear stories like yours, the more I'm inspired to, to, to work a little harder my own entrepreneurship journey. So, so Bill, we're going to start with the, the kind of the beginning of things. Well, let's start with Bill Ryan. Family, uh, you know, interest a little bit. Give, give us a couple minutes of Bill Ryan right now, your family, your your uh, your, your um, you know, sure. interest in life and things like that right now. Sure. You know, one of the things I thought that I'd do today, kind of understanding who the audience is and, and also some of your expectations and objectives for this, I, I kind of wanted to go back 100 years or so because right. my story as an entrepreneur and kind of being here today has a lot of parallels and a lot of similarities with kind of America in general. So I'm, I'm Irish, if you couldn't tell by my name. Mm. And uh, my family came to the United States shortly after the potato famine in uh, Ireland back in the uh, 1840s and 1850s. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was right around the time I've got obviously two, two branches of the family. I've got the my paternal and my maternal. My paternal is the Ryans, obviously. And as the story goes, my, I don't know if it'd be great, 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 or third grade or fourth grade, uh, came shortly after the potato famine and came to the United States during the Civil War. He was a stowaway. And at the time, uh, the immigration uh, 
rules or the immigration uh, action in the United States was here's a rifle if you were a, a male of age. And basically, if, if you live through the Civil War, you get to be a United States citizen. Oh, wow. So that, that's kind of how, how the Ryans on, uh, on, my, on my dad's side got here. And so obviously he lived and he kind of got his citizenship and uh, ended up migrating west and uh, his family ended up in Pittsburgh. On my mother's side, the Fitzpatricks, similarly, they came right around the potato famine as well. They all came to the East Coast, the New York, Philadelphia area. They migrated, and they ended up in Johnstown. And there was a little thing called the Johnstown Flood. Mm -hmm. And as the story goes, there was something that uh, he he worked in the, uh, the steel mills there, that the family went to visit somebody that weekend or that, that week and wasn't in their normal place, so didn't get wiped out in the Johnstown flood. Wow. They ended up migrating to Pittsburgh as well. So it's kind of how my my family got to Pittsburgh uh, in the uh, mid to late 1800s. So again, kind of a typical immigrant, poor uh, comes to America to try to, you know, live the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So then, in the uh, right around the turn of the century, my grandfather was born, and he was what many Irish at the time were. It was you know there wasn't a lot of opportunities, uh, kind of a persecuted group to a large extent, and so it was you could have an opportunity to work in the coal mines, and that was about it. And through a lot of hard work, and he, you know, the story goes he was a very hard worker, and he was ended up being the foreman in the coal mines when he was 16. So, story goes he meets my to be grandmother, and uh, she was a Reardon who also came from Ireland, and uh, he wanted the dater, and she basically didn't want to have anything to do with him because <laughs> she knew there's not a lot of history, you know, there's not a lot of future and mm-hmm. people working in the coal mines. Mm-hmm. And you either die in the, the mine or you get black lung and you are kind of end up starting to die when you're 30 or 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So she told him, absolutely not. Don't want to have anything to do with you while you're working in the coal mine. So he was uh, smitten, I guess, and the story goes he ended up, he quits his job in the coal mine, and to make ends meet, he has about three separate jobs and delivering papers. Uh, I'm not sure what the other one was, but the third one was being a general laborer on a construction site. Now this is this is in the 20s, and so it's the Roaring 20s in America. So a lot's going on. There's a lot of opportunity, and even you know, even Irish kids and Irish young people can have an opportunity to get out there and work and make some money. So he's my grandmother ends up marrying him. They have a little apartment, and he kind of sees, he kind of likes what's going on in the construction site. So he saves some money, and he buys a, uh, a building lot, and he starts building the house that he promised my grandmother on their, on their wedding night. You know, he said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to build you a house. Yeah. And uh, so he starts, starts building it. And this is about 1925, 
and he gets it into the, about the frame. And again, this is the the 20s, so lots happening. And somebody comes by and uh, who's uh, manager or something at a local company says, "I you know I want to buy the house. You know how much is it for sale? How much?" And he says, uh, "No, it's not for sale. You know it's my family's home." And so guy goes on. He goes home and he tells my grandmother, and she says, "Well." how much was he going to give you? And he goes, well, I don't know. <laughs> he didn't say. I didn't ask anymore. I, you know, I kind of made you a commitment. So they sit down and kind of figure out how much is in it and how much it was, would cost. And he, he ends up finding the guy and tells him, well, I could do it for this much money. And the guy, they agree. And he makes more money on that transaction than he makes in about six months of doing three jobs. Wow. So he's like, you know what? There's something to this gig about building houses so that's kind of officially how my family got into building houses and so you know a little bit of america backdrop at the time again the roaring 20s he's a very hard worker he builds that house he builds a couple more and within a couple years he's kind of a well-known builder in pittsburgh he goes to the uh you know, he, he builds in America. You know, you've you've got a much more defined step or opportunity for social uh, social status, social right? status, social increases. In the stories, he, he they go to the inaug- the presidential inauguration in 1928 of uh, I think Hoover was the president. But again, you know, within a few years from Working in the coal mines, not having anything, you know, he's end up. He's, he's feeling some status. Yeah, nice he's status a, here. He's a pretty successful local businessman. He's at the presidential inauguration. Um, shortly thereafter, the Great Depression hits. Mm. Uh, you know, 1929, and I think it lasts for like like 10 years. So they fall on hard times. But again, he, he's a hard worker. It's he's, he makes ends meet. They've got four kids. My dad's the youngest uh, of wow. four. Um, and then, so the uh, the Depression goes to, to 39 right when the war starts. So war, World War II starts in 39, and that's, I think, kind of historians will say the official end to uh, the, the Great Depression. So my oldest um, uncle, my dad's oldest brother, goes over to war and becomes a, uh, a navigator. Um, one of the big bombers, mm-hmm. B-52 bomber navigators. And uh, my grandfather, uh, sh- in a, a couple years after that, I think 1942, dies in a car accident. Mm. And they didn't have any, uh, he didn't have any life insurance. You know, they'd kind of like spent it and gone through it during the, the Depression. Mm-hmm. We're kind of living hand to mouth. And so my grandmother, all of a sudden, you know, her husband dies, her oldest son's at war, you know, the country's at war, and it's just a really, you know, tough, stressful time in the United States and for, you know, this this Irish family. So the war ends, or during the war, a couple things go on, and uh, one, right about when my grandfather died, my uncle got shot down over Vienna, and he becomes a prisoner of war. So, and it, and there's a Long story is actually a, a book was written, and he's kind of part of the book. But uh, just the little things 
and kind of the takeaway on this is the little things in life that end up being forks in the roads, you know, little things mm-hmm. that happen. And he was the navigator, and there was the guy who was the tail gunner who kept wanting to ride up front because tail gunners sit in the, the tail mm-hmm. and the little bubble under the tail, and they're always looking backwards. You know, yep. They never see where they're going. So he kept, he was he was always on my uncle about, hey, you know, I want to ride up front. I want to ride up front. And my uncle is kind of like, well, I can't let you ride up front. You know, I'm the navigator. Yeah, you know? Exactly. But on, on the way home after a, uh, a mission, he says, fine, I'll let you ride up front and I'll go in the back. And right as they were switching, the plane got hit. Oh, And it man. got hit in the front and the guy died who was sitting in the, uh, the navigator seat. Wow. The plane catches on fire. My uncle, you know, parachutes out. He gets uh, captured, and he's in a hospital. And and again, a lot of this is is um, kind of chronicled in this book. But he, he ends up. He's in Budapest. He's in a hospital. And when the when the Russians are taking over Budapest, they come in and they start killing all the German soldiers. And they don't necessarily know who who's who. Sure. And uh, the nuns had come up, and they protected him and a couple other American soldiers. So he ends up making it back, you know, alive after a couple, wow. couple hairy episodes. <clears throat> and when he gets home, it's about nineteen, I think, forty-five or forty-six, and he comes into the you know the house with my my grandmother and kind of like okay. You know, I'm back. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And uh, she reaches out in a box and she pulls out this envelope. And in that envelope, she's got three deeds to building lots mm. that she's held on to, even though, you know, it was the depression and things were really tough. And, you know, her husband died and, you know, that she's taken in laundry to make ends meet. And she could have very well have sold the building lots and for extra money to make things easier for her, you know, and her family. But, but she didn't because she kind of had the, you know, she had the belief in, in the future of America and the future of, you know, her, her kids. So mm-hmm. that's, like I said, 1945, my uncle, uh, the, my, my grandfather's company was, uh, uh, EJ Ryan Holmes. And then my uncle, Started up was E. M. Ryan Holmes, Edward Martin Ryan Holmes after uh, after the war. So throughout Pittsburgh in the forties and fifties, they become a pretty substantial home building company. Uh, my uncle, other uncle, and my dad joined the company, and by the seventies, Ryan Holmes becomes the largest home building company in America. So all of that. You know, kind of like only in America, up against a lot of adversity and what could possibly be seen as really bad luck, but opens the doors to opportunity. And that's kind of that's kind of how I got here today and how I got in in the uh, the business. Yeah. Wow. So so I mean, when you came to Chicago, though, I mean, you came from Pittsburgh as a young guy. Yeah. Tell us about what happened, how, how that happened, and how you you uh, ended up on your own. Well, it's another funny thing about the family. You know, we we talk about the, uh, you know, when you say core values. Well, work hard work is one of my core values, mm-hmm. and the family has always kind of, you know, seen that as 
one of the catalysts and elements for success. I, uh, you know, I tell my kids, I, you know, learning how to work is a lot like learning how to study. Not everybody knows it. Like, you know, you're not like born knowing how to study well. You need tutors and all mm-hmm. that, and and you need a certain amount of repetitions. And and hard work's very similar. And I mean, I worked in the construction industry my whole life. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it in the in when I was younger. I innately I don't like the mornings. I like to sleep in. And, but it was, you know, so many repetitions of getting my ass kicked or getting out there on on the job site. Mm-hmm. But then, um, I mean, what's the thing we, we had a YPO guy years ago said, you know, you have to do things twenty some times in a row before you kind of get a, a habit. You pick up a habit. Mm-hmm. You know, repetitions right. build habits. Habits build culture. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the the, the hard work and I, you know, I, t- I tell my kids i say you know being a hard worker is like having the cheat code in your video games you know trying to put it into the you know the, the young kids vocabulary just like you sure. know if you're in a video game and you get in trouble you hit the cheat code you know if you're in life or you're in business not everybody always wants to work hard but if you've got that in your repertoire it, it's like a cheat code. You mm-hmm. you can be a little bit more risk um, tolerant because you know that if you get yourself in a little bit of pickle, you can always work your way out of it. Exactly. So, um, you know, back on back on the story. So my uh, how I ended up in Chicago from Pittsburgh. It's born in Pittsburgh, and through the Ryan Homes growth uh, through the '60s and '70s to become a national home builder. Um, some of the things that they learned, the Ryans learned going through these adversities was that risk management. I mean, they were risk takers, but they had lived the bad times mm-hmm. and they had been, you know, within a couple of hairs of, you know, either dying or, you know, missing this opportunity to, to be in the home building business. And uh, so they went on this national expansion and, and they made some rules some parameters that said you know we will not risk more than this much capital and they developed what was not really prevalent in the industry at that time and that was doing things like rolling options on lots so typically a builder would find his own piece of ground develop it put the streets in build the house Mm -hmm. their model was let's have somebody else buy the land put the streets in we'll buy the lots and then we'll build the house and we'll use a deposit to lever financially that amount of the assets. And we'll also use our, um, our reputation and our past history of doing what we say to make every, everything work. So they were able to scale across the country with a much lower amount of capital Mm -hmm. than had they tried to do it the traditional way of buy everything and, um, and, and so what happened was my, my dad, being the youngest son, he was the guy that went out and opened new communities. So I left Pittsburgh or, you know, with my family when I was young, a couple years old. We moved to um, Rochester, New York. We moved to Syracuse, New York. We moved to Cleveland, Ohio. We Where, moved, wherever your dad was opening up new. Right. 
Columbus, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, and then down to Cincinnati, Ohio. And the uh, and when we we actually even uh, my mom jokes that the house she's in now she's lived there almost fifty years, but that where she moved into that house and it was like her fourteenth or fifteenth house <laughs> that she'd she'd moved into, <laughs> and uh, just some of you know some of the things that are popping in my head now like. My dad, uh, my dad was always kind of complaining that he didn't get paid enough from his big brother, and uh, you know his his older brother would say, "We're we're paying you an experience," <laughs> <laughs> and so he uh, to make ends meet. When whenever he moved in, he drug the family into a new city. He was able to build a house at cost, so we would live in a rental home for the first you know, six nine months while my dad built a house. He would get the house built, we would move in, and then shortly after that, he would get transferred to another city, and he would start it all over again. And uh, there ended up being six kids, so my mom's dragging these six kids from city to city. Like a military family right. almost. Right, yeah, double moves <laughs> in every, every city. So we get to Cincinnati, and uh, my dad opens up that town, and he's uh, doing pretty well, and all of a sudden, the middle brother uh, just has a butting heads with his older brother and so he quits the company and he moves to columbia maryland and ends up starting the ryland group ryland homes which is another company that was built to be the largest home builder in the country but so my dad gets called back to pittsburgh and my mom says we're not going (laughs) i got six kids they're in school they're everybody's doing well we're finally in a house we've been in this house for two and a half years it just feels like forever you know you really don't want to move and so my dad says well I can't say no to my brother all I can do is quit and uh, start my own company so he quits and starts his own company and (laughs) so at that time at that time the original company was one of the biggest in the country if not the biggest right Ryland Holmes then was formed which became one of the biggest Right. right Yeah, and, and then and then the third one now. Right, was my dad's uh, company. It's called uh, Rycrest uh, Crest Communities, and they became the largest builder in the Midwest. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like that. Keeping up with the Joneses a little bit, there was a lot of peer pressure within the family. And or you know, or Christmas is like. Yeah, well, you know, fast <laughs> fast forward. Uh, you know, there was always a little bit of contention, but uh, you know, one of the things that. You know, my dad passed away a couple years ago, and and when I gave the eulogy, one of the things I was kind of most um, appreciative and one of my big takeaways was is no matter how busy we were and how stressful and that, we always went on family vacations. You know, there were six kids piled into the station wagon, and he grew up in on the East Coast, so they would go to the Jersey Shore. Uh, you know, he, he would talk about, being a frame carpenter and after Friday work, they'd jump in the car and they'd drive to the shore and you know, just kind of party all weekend. And so we're driving from Cincinnati, Ohio to the Jersey shore mm-hmm. every year in this station wagon. And, you know, the stories of pulling over the side of the road and him getting in the back and trying to reach as far as he could to grab some kid to beat the hell out of her. <laughs> <laughs> for asking how long it's going to be. Before you get right. There. For asking like a bunch of monkeys in the, you know, car just kind of fighting and, and screaming. But, uh, um, so anyway, so he starts his own, his own business in, in Cincinnati. And did, did you see, did you see any friction in the relationship between your dad and his brothers back then around that time? Um, did you feel it? 
you know, a, a little bit. Uh, kind of what ended up happening was uh, so on on Ryland's Ryland Homes. Uh, progress to become the largest builder in the country. They actually merged with my dad's company and, mm-hmm. and became the Ryland Group, which and, and my mm-hmm. dad was president of that for a while. And they, I remember he uh, he came home one uh, one day and told everybody he quit. And my mom was like, "Why you you quit?" And he's like, oh, "I had to quit because I was going to beat the hell out of my brother." And he, <laughs> in the board meeting, he he was the youngest, but he was the, he was the biggest and kind of the, the strongest of the three. And he was, I just I realized like well, I just can't work for my brother. <laughs> and uh, you know, they on, on family wise, always there was a lot of emphasis on on the family structure, uh, but at work there were a lot of a lot of headbutting and a lot of a personalities and. And that so, lots of entrepreneurship, and I think at one time, uh, the cousins as well. We we had, I think we caught up to eighteen, sixteen different home building companies at the same time. What between all in all, the same uh, same family? Yeah, between wow. cousins and all that. No, wow. we, we joke because nobody could work with each other, so. Everybody thought they had a better way. So absolutely, absolutely <laughs> dominated the industry, though, when it comes to you know any family that uh-huh. had the industry, right? Maybe from your experience, is there um, you know maybe anything that you can say? Okay, because you know you always hear from some people like never work with family, mm-hmm. and I, then you you know you hear from some others like there is a way where that can happen. Is there anything that you saw like well if we could have did this differently, or if you're going down that road, here are some things that we've seen from our experience. Just watch out for you know is there anything mm-hmm. from that component? Um, well, there's a, uh, I'll, I'll start on some of my isms that Gary talked about my, uh, Billisms. Yeah. They just, <laughs> Billisms. To, give, to give you a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of base on this, my, my middle, the middle uncle who went and started, uh, Ryland Holmes, um, through a story for him, uh, kind of goes with, with some of the other stories. So he's president of... Ryland Holmes, who at the time I think was probably top 10 builder in the country, he's getting affluent and he buys, he's got a bunch of racehorses. So being the type that the Ryans are, he's like, I just, I've got, I spent all this money on these racehorses and all I can do is watch them. He goes, I want to ride them. (laughs) And the trainer's like, dude, you can't. I can't ride your horse. These are racehorses. You can't ride I them. I can't imagine. You're a pretty big guy yourself. You couldn't have been a five-foot-tall jockey, right? Well, he was kind of small. Like I said, he was the, my dad was the, the largest. My dad was more my size, but I think he's probably closer to a, not a jockey size, but but a workout a workout jockey who were typically bigger. All right. So anyway, he, he said, I'd like to ride him during the workouts. And you know, the, the trainer's like, you just can't do that. And he's like, don't I own these horses and don't I pay you? <laughs> so he ends up and he's training these horses. He's riding them. He would go out and he would ride with the training. And he ends up getting thrown <laughs> and breaks his neck. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. So he's, you know, they say he's an inch from moving his head left or right from being completely paralyzed. But he has to wear the halo where they drill the screws in your head and he's – laying in a hospital bed for for quite a while and he kind of has this life-changing epiphany if you will uh you know people he's not are not gonna ride horse anymore well that and and he's kind of 
he's kind of done on the uh, the treadmill of of like aggressive growth building. He says he's sitting, how, how old was he at this point? He was about fifty, and uh, late forties, right around fifty. But he he tells a story of laying in the hotel or laying in the hospital bed. And guys coming in trying to cheer him up, tell him how many sales they had and you know how much money they made. And he says all he could do is he's pressing the nurse's button for more morphine, you know, for like I just you know kind of put like the perspective in, in you know life in perspective. But Quint, to your point is our question. He he went on to get a uh, degree in psychology from Johns Hopkins and. Uh, giving back at that time that was his way to get back, and he he was is one of my mentors and uh so i learned a lot about psych psychology and different psychological um, ways to approach uh things in life and to your question about the the family working together like many things it's not like a yes or no and and his his way of um teaching it was think of a submarine and your life is a submarine and like a submarine, you've got chambers and you've got doors between them. And the reason there's doors between the chambers is if one takes a hit or starts leaking, you can shut that door and it doesn't affect the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Life is like that and you've got your different chambers. And they say the, the, the center chamber is the chamber on spirituality. And that's the most important because if you have a... a you know, a, a strong spiritual base and self appreciation. You know, that's that's your main one. And your other ones are things like work, family's a big one, uh, friends, and all that. So the point is, if your chamber is open between family and work, and one of them takes a shot, it's going to flood the other one too. Mm-hmm. So if two brothers are working together and they are playing golf on the weekend and they get an argument, well, that's going to flow over to work. For sure. Or if two brothers are at work and one of them's got to discipline the other one or fire them or whatever, that's going to flood over Mm. to Thanksgiving. Mm. So, you know, it's not a yes or no. It's just kind of an understanding of the the additional risk that you take. Now, that said, my brother, younger brother worked for me and I worked for my dad and it's uh it it with my brother i i would say both of them <clears throat> both of them turned out to be more positive than negative mainly with my younger brother we uh we ended up being able to have a stronger relationship and to this day he he doesn't work for me anymore but uh we had an amicable separation and he's on my board of directors and um he he has a big help on my board of directors but i mean even if not that it's it's an opportunity to see him more he lives in tampa and you know i live in chicago so there are positives but it's just does he build homes too yeah he does yeah <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you didn't share this with me before bill I, this this submarine chamber thing uh-huh. man you, you would have awesome. saved some relationships in my life if you had told me this 10 15 years ago first yeah. not. i'm pretty sure <laughs> i did i don't think you were listening well, that's, that may have been, that may so but, so anyway you know back to the story and you know how i got it's a long story of how i got here today but a lot of it's relevant in, uh, in my positives and my negatives. But so my dad, we're in Cincinnati, and he, he decides to stay there and put down roots. Um, I grew up 
learning the business from my dad. And, and you know, one of the things we want to talk about is mentorship. And I've had three mentors, uh, three main mentors. I probably had, a, you know, teachers and stuff like that. But three main ones. The first one was my dad. And my dad taught me my vocation of home building. And he, he's the one that taught me how to work. And it, was, it wasn't always pleasant. As a matter of fact, looking back on it, it was more unpleasant than pleasant. <laughs> but I got the repetitions in, and I learned how to work. And now uh, I'm a damn good worker, and so, you know, sometimes to a fault. You know, I, I fall back on my cheat code of working hard work probably more than I should. It puts me in a position where sometimes I shortcut due diligence and, and just I, I know that, well, things go wrong, you know, I can push my cheat code button, I can work my ass off for a while and, you know, get out of the mess. And, that, and that's happened. I mean, I, I've watched you go through some of that, mm-hmm. and, and you, there's no way you didn't have that di- that uh, the dignity of work, the habit of work that you have, you wouldn't have got through them. I, I know many people in your industry that didn't get through a very tough time, 2008, 9, 10. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I was, I was your, your buddies then, and, I, and you got through it. It wasn't easy. I saw you, you know, have to have to do a lot of tough things, make a lot of tough decisions, and uh, you got through it. But, but again, it was your, you were, your work ethic was crazy during that time, as it kind of always is, but you were focused on what you had to do to get through the tough time, and some people couldn't go backwards to work like you had to work to do that. Right. And that's, uh, you know, some of these things that we talk about, some of the values, and like I said, work is definitely one of them. And uh, I... I think you had a qu- you have a question here about like a billboard or something. And one of my visuals is I, uh, the movie The Raging Bull. I don't know if you ever remember the movie with Jake yep. LaMotta, sure. The Raging Bull. Well, there's a scene in that movie where he's fighting Sugar Ray Leonard, and Sugar Ray Leonard is just giving him a clinic. And you know, he's just Sugar Ray's just a much better boxer, and uh, Jake LaMotta is more of a fighter kind of brawler type. And Jake realizes he's not going to win, but so he basically he drops his arms and he just lets Sugar Ray just mm. like pound the the, the hell out of him. Yeah. And you know, in the movie, there's like blood splattering and going on the front row and stuff. He says to, to Sugar Ray, he says, "You never knock me down, Ray. You never knock me down." And they, they had fought a couple times, and he's you know basically that. You know, I, his perseverance or his stamina or his, his grit is you can hit me as hard as you want or as long as you want, but you're not going to knock me down. Yeah. And that was that and, you know, just I, I, I even tell I tell a lot of my uh, workers or you know, executives and friends that might be going through hard times. And just, you know, something you got to tell yourself is just you always got to answer the bell. Mm-hmm. You know, just. You may want to go home and go to bed, and I've been that where I want to sleep for 24 hours. And but that next day, it's just you know answer the bell. You might not have all the answers, you might not have a plan, but as long as you're like getting out of your corner and coming in, you got a shot. So just kind of on on that yeah that work ethic. And, and you know, by the time I knew you as, as friends, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been around uh, the you know, paving business for. Gosh, 15, 20 years prior and, and doing driveways for the first 10 years of my career. And I saw 
William Ryan Holmes everywhere. I mean, it was everywhere. I was like, I, mean, I want to work for this guy someday. I want, I want to be able to you know, pave these subdivisions for him, right? And never, never did you guys uh, hire me ever, <laughs> by the way. Um, but, but I, You're you know, too I, expensive, but, I'm sure. But I, I, I saw you guys everywhere. You know, and and, and then, uh, then eventually we get thrown this business forum through YPO together, and I meet the real William Ryan right in, in front of me. And, uh, and uh, you were, you were uh, everything I thought you'd be as far as the you know, entrepreneur you had to be to grow that you did. But, but let's go back to you know, where you started mm-hmm. in this business because you, you started this thing pretty much from, from nothing back Right when you started too, followed the the, the right. So footsteps wor- of your of the history. But t- let's talk right. about that. So I so I worked for my dad uh, from summers, um, and again, you know, the, I, I worked during Christmas too, and then that was just pops in my head as one of the things I always hated. I just I was always mad at my dad for making me work over the holidays, you know. And, all the way through high school and, and college, just college especially, you know, you come back, you want to just like party for a while, and my dad's like, "No, you got to work." I'm like, "Really?" <laughs> so, I worked through high school summers, uh, college summers, and I go to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, for college. So this this went about the time you're figuring out girls are fun instead of girls are icky, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. So the interesting thing, I, I again, I, I don't, I don't really like to work all that much. I mean, by that time, by the end of high school and into college, I'm, I'm kind of getting a little bit of it, but I want to be a veterinarian. So I go to, I, I go to college wanting to be a vet. I grew up on kind of a gentleman farm my, you know my dad did pretty well we lived on 15 acres and had a barn and horses and I saw and kind of participate in in horses being fold and we had all kind of animals and stuff like that so I thought you know that that sounds like a really good life being a vet you know for a large animal mm-hmm. uh, vet and my my parents had race horses as well so you know, the vet just seemed to be the guy that got these big big bills and their big checks and didn't really do a whole lot of work <laughs> and got to play with animals and, and stuff. And, so, and nobody's griping about it. You know, do, do a bad job. Nobody's complaining. Yeah. Especially with the animals, you know, there's not a whole lot of like uh talk back. That's so, right. As long as they're, they're breathing, you're okay. Right. So I go to Marquette and I want to be a veterinarian and the first year of biology and physics and that just kicks my ass. <laughs> and I just really, you know what, I'm just not smart enough to, to be, a doctor of any kind. So I, f- I fall back on what comes naturally and that's numbers. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm naturally good at numbers. So I end up, I get a degree in accounting. I'm an accountant and I make a lot of friends that are from Chicago and we go down to Chicago and end up graduating. And a lot of my friends from Marquette end up living in Chicago, the, the Lincoln park area kind of, you know, the second college campus, everybody lives there for three or four yeah. years. And I, I, when I moved back to Cincinnati and I work for my dad full-time now, this is, this is like 1983, right when the, uh, uh, the second worst recession mm-hmm. for home building is, is just starting to unwind. Yep. It's, uh, you know, interest rates. 18, 18, 20% even. Prime rate went to 22. <coughs> uh, home mortgage rates were... 11, 12, um, maybe 15, I My think. My first house was 18, and it was, uh, and it was uh, 85, I think it was. Yeah, so and it was just crazy. 
and, and but the the thing that they had, they still had some appreciation, which uh, we didn't have in the last crash. But uh, so anyway, I go back and I work for my dad. I start out as a field superintendent. Again, I'm pretty good with numbers, so I move into the office, and uh, I'm in purchasing. I'm pretty a personality, so I just kind of want to do more and more and more. And I, I'm like, okay, I'm 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 at work, so I need to be running the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like all there is to it, and kind of know better than everybody else. And you know, for a lot of lot of it, I did because I I'd been in the business for a while. I got a degree in accounting. I remember uh, going to uh, going to work in the office in accounting, and and everything was manual spreadsheets. So when you did a budget, and you know every month had a hundred line items, and there's twelve months, and every time you'd pass that up the chain, and somebody put marks on it, you had to like get the eraser out, rewrite it, and then you'd have to re- your, take your calculator and refigure out. And I go, this is crazy. So I went and I bought a uh, one of the compact computers the first portable like computer looked like a sewing machine and you you unscrew the the board drops down Mm -hmm. and there's a little tiny green screen and and i would bring that in i would show these guys see look press watch this i'm going to change this number here and it's going (laughs) to automatically change all the other numbers whoa no way i know exactly can't can't happen all these old guys are standing around like Wow, do that again. <laughs> this will never work. It's a, there's no way this is going to be the thing in the future. All right, so I, I, I kind of like, I saw this opportunity. Like, there's a, I can, I can run this thing. You know, I can kind of bring a lot of new ideas and I can really, um, you know, make things happen. So, I, and, I, and I did, and I progressed up. And by the time I was 20, probably about 27 or 28, I opened my own division, which is a profit center in northern Kentucky. So we, Cincinnati's kind of a tri-state mm-hmm. area, and we were in Cincinnati, and you go right across the Ohio River to northern Kentucky. And uh, so I went over there, opened up an office, built it from scratch, um, was starting to get things going, and then that was through like the the late 80s, and things were pretty good for home building, mm-hmm. and then they started to slow down about 90. And my dad decided to go f- consolidate back from two divisions down to one division. And so there's two division presidents. There's a division president mm-hmm. of the bigger Cincinnati division and the smaller Kentucky division. So he comes in. He says, Bill, you know, I'm going to give, you know, Jim's going to be the, the president, you know, division president. And I'd like you to come in and, you know, in an uh, accounting, marketing, you know, you're, you're good in all that. And I was like, this is complete bullshit. <laughs> I go, I'm better than him. I go, I don't have as many years as him, but I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. He's as good as he's ever going to be. I'm already better than him. And this is just, this is a really bad decision. And you're doing it just because I'm your kid. Uh-huh. You know, it's reverse nepotism, which was pretty much all true. It's, we, pra- <laughs> we practice that around here, too. Yeah. I mean, I, my daughter works for me and I, sure i do a little of the same even unintentionally uh so i just said you know that's it i'm got to go on my own you know i i, I can't work through I, it's hard enough to work hard to be successful without having to deal with the bs mm-hmm. of other people's you know strategies and all that that i may or may not agree with i'm not saying that was the right answer but that's how i felt at, at the time so knowing all my 
friends in Chicago and I would come up here and I would visit them and, and I had always thought, you know, if I could ever live in Chicago, it's just an amazing, amazing place. I, I'd really like to. So I did a little bit of market research in the early 90s. This is right around 91 or yeah, 90. This is like the end of 90. And in the 90s, Chicago was predicted to be the number one home building city in the country. So I'm like, okay, well, the stars seem to be aligning <laughs> here. Uh, I love Chicago. I got buddies in Chicago, and Chicago's going to be the best place for home building. So I moved to Chicago in, uh, like, mid-'91 and uh, started my, my company. And uh, some of the things I – some of your questions here were, like, what – you know, what did you learn or, you know, if you, what would you do different now than before? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the biggest things that I didn't acknowledge or didn't quite understand was the value of a network. So I was coming with very little network. I don't know anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, in my industry, I knew absolutely nobody. Uh, so uh, I show up and I just start picking, you know, I'm here already. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I kind of know it because I started a division in Kentucky, but there was a lot of, you know, a lot of legacy over from the, the bigger division in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and there were the suppliers were similar about the lumber and drywall from the same places. So, I kind of relied on a little bit of reach back to Cincinnati. If they knew anybody in Chicago, not a lot of trans transfer over. And so they're still talking at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the, the suppliers were that. In, in my, you know, my dad got it, obviously. He quit his older brother. Yeah. You so know, it's one of the things. It. I've had some key executives and key employees leave for what they thought at the time better opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to be really disappointed at them when I kind of left my dad and mm-hmm. st- started my own thing. So, so I get that. And uh, as long as people do it, decently and when I left my dad I, I did it decently and he was actually um, a big part of me building my new company because uh, one of the things that I learned was I didn't do a really good job I didn't do I did a really crappy job understanding the 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 city of Chicago how the mm-hmm. business works here I just assumed yeah, this is the way it works in Cincinnati. Must work the same in Chicago. It's the Midwest, Midwest, and Midwest. Yeah, right? you know, whatever. It's the same thing. Well, it, it wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a lot different. It was, it was a lot of the kind of the old way where you had to own the land. You bought all the land first, and then you could build houses. There was no merchant developers that sold finished lots to home builders, at least on a production. I mean, if you were mm-hmm. a custom builder, you could do that, but not on a production basis. Which did, did you come here? Did do. you have any other investors in yourself? Or was it just yourself, or did you have anybody else? That, just that myself. And until I, I I inked my first deal, I found a guy who would sell me a what we call super pads. In other words, it it was already zoned. It was entitled, and he would run the main street in with the main utilities. I would just have to extend into my section mm-hmm. and, and put like sixty lots in. And I worked him down to two takes of thirty, and you know, just negotiate as hard as I could because basically I didn't have any money. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like <laughs> kind of forced me to uh, forced me to do it. I think I think I showed up. I had two hundred grand. Uh, 
was my wow. my stake what I took out of Cincinnati. Done you done by a lot of dirt even back in 1991 or two. No, no, and so I finally I, I worked the best deal that I could, and then so I go down to uh, a bank. I go to the bank here, and little did I know this was. I kind of knew it was the financial crisis of early 90s. And I couldn't even deposit my check in a bank. I would say, all, all I want to do, I want to deposit this. You know, I had like $215,000 sure. check. And I said, I want to make a deposit. I want to borrow money. And they're like, I'm sorry, we're not. We'll, we'll take it into your uh, personal account, but we can't open up a business account for you. And they said, we're under strict orders, no new real estate companies. Wow. So I, I got this check in my pocket that I'm walking around with <laughs> for a couple nobody's months. Nobody's taking it. Nobody will take my, my check. It, it, you know, it was that bad. So I ended up kind of had to hat in hand go back to my dad and said, you know, Dad, do you, do you know anybody that knows anybody <laughs> in, <laughs> in Chicago? And, you know, he knew some people. It was at Fifth Third Bank at the time and was – basically just in Cincinnati. It was before they moved up here. And mm-hmm. he knew some guys that knew some guys. And with my dad being putting some money in and being part of investor in my first deal, I was able to get my first deal done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, another learning experience. You know, I left thinking that, you know, I'm going to do it all on my own and, and this. And it was just now you kind of you're going to need you're going to need help. But you had, you, even though it was your dad, you had to leave the tracks behind you in pretty good shape in order, in order for your dad to say, you know what, I'm going to invest in you too, right? You didn't piss him off too bad. Otherwise, he, he wouldn't have helped. He wouldn't have invested with you, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, and, for that's, sure. and that's like any, any job today. I tell any young person today, always, always do the best job, leaving the best relationships behind you. And right. so, so they're always there for you. Yeah, I tell people, life is a long time. Mm, you're yeah. <laughs> you're, you're going to meet a lot of the same people again and again and uh, I think we probably have, I don't know, we might have three or four key executives in our company now that worked for us and then didn't work for us and then came back. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they probably they probably left in a great way when they left, and that's why they're back. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you, us too. That, that breakup's always, you know, it's never like, okay, we're going to throw you a party. Yeah. But it's, you get it, you're a professional, you know, mm-hmm. as long as, again, as long as you're not a jerk. We're in, we're in it for a reason to be a professional company, and if you're a professional, of course we'll take you back. So so in the 90s, you grew a lot, because I, I remember seeing William Ryan signs everywhere and you know, subdivisions all over the place, all over the northern Illinois and suburban Chicagoland area. Right. Um, what what gave you the ability to do that so fast? So I um, won the market was, was pretty good, but as an entrepreneur, again, I said we're, we're pretty cash-strapped. So I... I uh, I hear of a parade of homes, which is a home show. They get a couple bunch of builders together, dozen builders or so, and they put their houses all right next to each other. And then there's a show, and people come out and they see a bunch of houses. So I, I go to the uh, the home builders association and kind of make it sound like you know got this company where it's just like me. I said, yeah, our, you know, <laughs> our, our team, company. Yeah. Our uh, team does it this way. Right, yeah. right. You know, it's, it's another thing, you know, good message for entrepreneurs is that fake it till you make it kind of deal. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I, I go and I'll, I'll try to remember. I'll tell you, you know, the, the, the chutzpah of a Swifty Lazar story that, uh, remember, I'll tell it right now. 
Chris can cut it out later if he wants. <laughs> so it's kind of on. The, it, it's a good message for entrepreneurs, and it's that to be successful, you got to have that chutzpah. You know, you, you got to. It's a game. You got to have the what? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. It's a, okay. it's a Jewish thing that says, you know, you got to be able to play the game. You got to be able to fake it till you make it. And one of my favorite stories on that is the story of uh, Swifty Lazar. Swifty Lazar was one of the top uh, talent agents in Hollywood back in the, the Roaring Fifties or, or or that era. And the story goes that how he got to start. He's this little short, five foot nothing, bald Jewish guy who's got it in his mind that he's going to be a Hollywood power movie agent. And so he goes out to like many. You know, many entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs. He's got this drive, and he goes out there to Hollywood, and he's just really working it hard, really working it hard, and he's not having a lot of luck. And then somehow somebody says, "Here, I tell you what. There's this new starlet who's looking to sign at one of the big studios. She needs a agent. You know, there's a bunch of the big guys who are, are trying to get her to sign, but yeah, who knows? I'll, I'll try to set a lunch up for you." kind of trying to throw on a scrap so he's nervous as hell and he's meeting with this this starlet and she's like okay friend of mine said i had to meet with you why why would i use you you know mm-hmm. you, you don't haven't done anything and he's trying to tell her well you know we've got i've got this and i can do this and it's just not going anywhere and so he's he's excuses himself to go to the restroom to try to like come up with some type of line and how he can convince her and when he's in the restroom, he sees Frank Sinatra. And he's like, oh, my gosh, there's Frank Sinatra. So he goes up to Frank, and he says, oh, Mr. Sinatra, you know, big fan. You know, my name is Swifty Lazar. And uh, Frank's looking at him like, why is this guy talking to me in the restroom, you know? And uh, he said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get into the business as an agent. If you could do me a huge favor, come over and – you know, stop by the table and say hello to me. It would really mean a lot and really help me out. And Frank's like, "Dude, I, I don't know you. I am not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it. Just kind of go on your way." And Swift's like, "No, really, Mr. Sinatra. It would mean the world to me. I'm in that table, the second one on the right, right as you walk out." So Frank just kind of like, I don't know. And Swifty goes back to his his table. A couple minutes later. Frank Sinatra comes out, sees him, they make eye contact, and I, Sinatra feels sorry for him and walks over and goes, Hey, Swifty, you know, Frank here, great to see you. And the, you know, star looks, you know, the, the starlet looks up and mesmerized by Frank Sinatra. And Swifty kind of turns his head, looks up, pauses. Uh, not now, Frank. Can't you see I'm busy? <laughs> 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 so you know it's a little bit of that that's the the chutzpah that and then the you know so the starlet obviously looked oh my god if this, guy, guy, can, this, guy, if work this guy can you know it's got the upper hand on frank sinatra this guy must have a lot of juice in this town so and uh ends up you know they, they say it's a true story i wasn't there but uh he, he had he does end up being one of the top hollywood agents and and you know in hollywood so anyway my uh off of my tangent I decided to build this house in a parade of homes. And I'm fearful is kind of an understatement. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're really living hand to mouth. 
And so every, it's almost like every week is got is a, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. And so I'm telling myself, I got to get my house sold before the show starts. Because if I can put a sold sign mm-hmm. in the yard when all these thousands and thousands of people are touring all the other top builders in Chicago, they're going to just buy, hey, sold. somebody already bought this guy's house. It must be really great. So I think I sold it. I think I broke even, which for me, it was was pretty good. I got my money back. I broke even. And it was a, I did sell it. I was able to put a sold sign in the yard. And, uh, you know, the people from the... The, uh, the show kept wanting me to take it down, and we, we'd come out, and it would be down, and I had, like, six of them in the garage. Go, you put that damn thing back up there, <laughs> you know? And so we we had it sold and ended up, you know, people in business, it's a little bit like the lemming factor. Nobody wants to be the first mm-hmm. guy in the pool, and but if, if people are buying something, it's like, well. What's going on? Yeah, yeah I, I better, I don't want to miss out on this. So Hopefully. we ended up selling four more houses in that community around the show, and that was kind of our. Also a great great point of differentiation that you re- you realize, right? If mine could be sold and they're not, they're not mm-hmm. it's a huge differentiator, right? Right, yeah. What's people, why? Why is that one sold and these aren't, right? Yeah, the, the couple biggest great, builders great in Chicago, and their, their houses aren't sold, but this guy's is sold. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the gold seal of approval. How, how did you use the, the Ryan name that was so successful nationally, right, when you got there? Were you able to leverage that a little bit to say, right, well, that's hey, another hey, one. William Ryan, of from you know, Ryan, the biggest home builder in the, in the country, of course. You, yeah, you know, you know yeah. us, I'm sure, right? Coming from another entrepreneur, you know exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I, again, having never built a house on, on my own, I'd, I'd built some houses, but never on my own, I was like, okay, how can I spin this? And so <laughs> I can't say that I'm – part of these other companies but i've got the same name and so you got to be kind of careful uh so i put uh uh building building value for three generations ah okay you know the name and then i put ryan the ryan builders have accounted for over two hundred fifty thousand homes built in the united states to to date Mm, perfect so I, I never did get challenged, but uh, my my cousin who who built out on the East Coast got challenged by Ryan Holmes. Uh, they asked him to change some of his marketing, but I figured that I could explain it. I say, well, the Ryan builders. I'm a Ryan. Mm-hmm. My my dad's a Ryan. My uncle's a Ryan. I'm talking no, about. She's my, you're, you're kind of doing marketing for them too. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I'm helping you out. That's right. That's right. You're not charging them for right. that. But you know, those are some of the things that to entrepreneurs, you know. Don't be afraid to live in the gray area. No. Uh, you, you, you need a little advantage, and you got to. Especially when you're starting out. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, you're just not going to be, you know, mm-hmm. looked upon in the same light as, as these big, you know, um, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old com- companies. you got to do something different. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, totally, Gary. Mm-hmm. We, we did that. We, we used that for quite a while. It's, it still might even be kind of up on the website uh, talking about the, the family heritage mm-hmm. and how, so, so through how, the 90s, how the family's been in the business since how, 1925. But. Yeah, yeah. So, so how did you grow from that in, in early 90s to you know 2000 all the way to the, the, the boom times of 2005, 6, and such? Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of the questions here is, you know, what, what did you want to do when you first came here? Um, the great business idea that I had. So 
I knew I wanted to be in construction. I knew I, you know, I picked Chicago and I knew I wanted to be my own boss. But my thought was I wanted to be in manufactured housing hmm. because I saw that as there's a lot of waste in our business. You know, there's a lot of two by fours and throw away a lot of drywall and a lot of trim and you know, throw away a lot of stuff. And mm -hmm. it just always kind of bugged me. And I don't know if it's from as a kid, you know, being yelled at if I didn't turn the lights off and you know eat everything on your plate. You know, don't waste any, you know don't waste anything. And I, I just or the fact that I was the kid that always had to clean everybody's garbage up. But uh, I wanted to be manufactured housing. And I spent probably a month or so trying to get information on shipping across roadways. How high can you go? How wide can you go? How heavy can it be? And I had a really, really hard time getting any information. I mean, this is before Google and, and that. So I uh, like, you know what? I gotta, I'll keep, I'll put that off to the side. I gotta do what I know I can do and kind of focus on the, the standard building mm -hmm. homes the way, you know, from the ground up, uh, on site. So, uh, when I kind of figured out that that's the way I would do build, build homes from the ground up, I decided, all right, I, I, I know some business acumen that now I'm going to start a company and there's certain things that my, so I said earlier, I said my, my first mentor was my dad who gave me my vocation and you know my uh, my ability to work or learn how to work hard. My second mentor was my uncle Jim, and he gave me um, business acumen and also some psychology and uh, dealing with people and just kind of overall understanding yourself and kind of a prelude to my third mentor, which was uh, Big Jim Leotelt, who talked about emotional intelligence and and things of that mm -hmm. sort. So I got um, I got uh, some information, learning about how to build companies uh, from my my uncle Jim, and part of it was coming up with a vision. You have to come up with a vision. You you have to be able to articulate what's the point of the game. Like in Monopoly, what's the point of the game? The point is at the end of the game, you've got to have the most money. That's that's what you're striving for. Mm -hmm. So. It came up with a vision, and this is back in the early 90s, that we wanted to be a top 10 national home builder. And that was kind of like, all right, I, I've come from a family of national home builders. I'm living in the best market for home building, Chicago. Let's, let's work to that, to that goal. So shortly after... I got things going here in Chicago. We opened up a division in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A couple reasons. One, I figured, hey, I went to school in Marquette in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. I know Milwaukee. <laughs> and uh, also, would, if I screwed it up, the hard work, I could just drive up there and I'd have to spend some nights in Milwaukee and, and fix it. And the uh, second part came true. I had to drive up there a lot and fix it. <laughs> I actually remember going up and seeing a house and having to tell the guy to tear the whole house down. It was so messed up. Oh, but, wow. Uh, uh, I didn't know Milwaukee as well as I did, but it was a good learning experience, again, teaching me how to go through the process of opening up divisions. Go to another market. 
right? So fast forward, that was 1995. Then I went back and I bought the company that I was working for, uh, my dad's company in Cincinnati. He had merged, I think I told you, he had merged with his Crest Communities with Ryland Homes to form the Ryland Group. And then he started a smaller company. I went back and I bought that. That was another big learning experience. I didn't do near enough due diligence. I just figured, hey, I used to work here five years ago. It's It'll be the same. And, huh. uh, and then learning to buy assets and not learning to buy a company because when you buy a company, you buy their liabilities too. Yes. And wow. Ended up buying about three or four lawsuits, which uh, wasn't a lot of fun. It's hard enough having your own lawsuits that you have to fight, and then yeah. you, go, you end up buying somebody else's. Right. So I learned that lesson. Then we went to Tampa, Florida. Then we went to Dallas, Texas. Then we went to Phoenix, Arizona. So by 2005, six, we were doing about 1,000 houses a year and about a quarter billion dollars a year. You have a lot of success within that time, you know, which is extremely amazing to hear. And um, I think one thing specifically for a lot of people, they want to make decisions, but they want to make the best educated risk. Being an entrepreneur is all about risk regardless, but um, knowing when to take a better educated risk. And you just said, you know, you went here and we failed and we went here, we're succeeding. And now we're in a thousand homes and we bought and went like, oh my gosh, like, you know, so how are you able, like what educated risk, what are certain things that you look at in order to say, okay, you know what, I think that'd be a good decision to do. Or, you know, let's, let's bypass that just because like, what are some of those specific mindset? Yeah. And, and I think that that's pro- probably one of the one of the common things between entrepreneurs is to be an entrepreneur, you have to be a risk taker. You know, you've got to be able to, you know, throw the dice and and just kind of hope for a good outcome. And you want to do your due diligence. And I have a saying that that I tell I tell I tell my kids this too because I think life has so much to do with risk management. And that is, everybody makes mistakes. You just need to be able to clean up your own mess. So what that means is don't take a risk that if it fails, you're not going to be able to get out of it. And, again, I tell my kids that. I tell my executives, hey, if, you, if you're going to build a spec house, okay, well, so you screw it up. If you screw it up, drop the price, get rid of it, get the money back, and we'll build another one. Don't sit on the house for a year hoping that somebody will come by you know it's kind of like acknowledge your mistake clean up your mess mm-hmm. and, and we have guidelines within our organization to, to limit people from making too big of mistakes so whenever I did uh, you know you you mentioned something uh, stay in your lane and, and the, there's a saying in business that um, if you do something and you're uh, if you diversify and you're you're successful, it you know it's it's called like diversification. You know you're you're very you're 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 a smart business person. You're diversifying your risk. If you fail, you've lost focus. You know you're. <laughs> That's right. you know? So it's the same thing. It's just like how you end up. You either successfully diversified or you lost focus to your core. But you've got to grow, and, and you're going to make mistakes. You just don't want any of them to be fatal and so don't you know don't don't bet everything you have on one roll of the dice Uh, and and that's kind of some of the things I would when I when I mentor and I've done some stuff for YPO with the you know the 
preparing for professional life with a bunch of kids. And one of the things I tell them is think of it as a marathon. I mean, you can't, you got to keep moving. You know, if you're running a marathon, you can't walk if you expect to win, but you also can't sprint the first mile. You know, you'll die. You'll never make it. So prepare for the long run. Think about it, but you got to constantly keep moving. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Like no, that was really good. And when you, when you look at risk, Bill, do you, do you look at different types of risk? In other words, if it's in your space, it's risk that you can take a little easier because you understand the space, right? If it's risk outside your space, something else that you're looking at doing, investing, or whatever, how, you know, how do you think of these couple things? And do you well, do- yeah, I mean, there's risk within the organization, within the operations, and kind of, you know, like one of the reasons why I spent maybe a little more time than normal on my my background is just, I mean, there's a lot of risk in business, and there's a lot of risk in my business in real estate, and so we've always come from the business model that there's a plan B. You know, plan A is everything works. Well, what if it doesn't? And so we always, always have an out. Now, that out will cost us money, and it's an insurance policy. So when we go in a deal and I'll say, okay, Quentin, I'm going to buy 100 lots from you, I say, I'll, here's, here's $100,000. I'll buy 10 lots every three months, and if I don't, you can kick me out and keep my 100 grand. Well, you might, if you're a smart business person, you're going to say, well, that's increased risk on my part. I'm going to have to charge you $110,000 a lot instead of $100,000 a lot to cover my risk, and it might happen, and we'll negotiate deposit and that, but you you do the best you can, but I got an out. And that's probably the biggest reason why we survived the downfall. Mm. We baked that into our business model that there's always an out. And, you know, whether you call it an exit door, you know, there's an emergency exit out of every deal or, you know, insurance or whatever it is. It's not going to kill us. So when, you know, when, when this happened, you, you know, you did have some of these in the submarine, some of these, what do you call them? Uh, chambers. Chambers, right? You had those chambers in place. Um, and when the, when the tough times happened, how, you know, how did they work out and explain that to us? So we know, we kind of know you went from nothing to a thousand homes a year over what, 15 years, 16 years? Uh, yeah, about that. It's crazy. It's amazing to think it's about really that, good, right? Yeah. I know a lot of home builders. That's not that's not a common story. Some people wish they can get to five. You yeah. know, five <laughs> homes. Yeah. So to 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 a thousand homes a year. That's unbelievable. You impacted that many families every year. And then two thousand was it seven, eight, nine came along, Bill. Um, and tell us what happened and how you had to how you had to handle that. Yeah. Well, one of the things, and I'll it, it's kind of uh, when you start up a company again for the entrepreneur. There's business acumen, and that is get a board of directors. And, and the reason I tell people this, and it, it, probably not year one, two, three, just because you probably don't want everybody knowing what you're doing. <laughs> you know, you're kind of dancing between the raindrops, and you're just you're trying to make things happen, shooting from the hip, which you got to do to survive. But once you start creating a legitimate organization. A board of directors is the boss of the CEO. And so you have a, an accountable group of people that you have to answer to. 
so I bring that up because I had my uncle Jim on my board as well as my dad on my board. And when things were really good, all they kept talking about was things are going to be terrible. <laughs> I kept saying, what are you talking about? He goes, listen, in 68, it was this. And then in 79, it was this. And then, you know, they, they give me all these troughs of the roller coaster of, of our industry. And uh, it got to a point where it started kind of believing them. And I'm like, you know, th- I, I'm reading a lot of stuff where there's too much froth in the market. And we said, okay, we're going to start taking a conservative position. And we reduced our debt, uh, made sure that, you know, we were more balance sheet focused than income sheet, income statement focused, and really kind of positioned ourselves. I mean, we knew something was coming. No idea was as going to be as bad as it was. Uh, and so when it came, we were already halfway hunkered down, prepared. And if you have, um, you know, advisory boards are obviously good, but that's just people giving, you know, kind of trying to help you out. A real board, uh, a board, a director on a board takes a fiduciary pledge and oath to the shareholders and also the creditors of an organization. So their job is to tell you the stuff as a CEO you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would strongly encourage that once you get to a certain level where you're kind of a real company. So initially, though, Bill, the board of advisors, I mean, right, I mean, when I, when I look back, I mean, I just started a board of advisors only like a year and a half ago, and I, I love them. There's three three mm-hmm. people right now. We're going to add one or two in the future, but three great people I respect that hold me accountable. And um, But, heck, I could have done this in, at a $2 million company, mm-hmm. right? I could, I could have started, and why not? Because you've got people that care about you, they're off of your best interest that would do this for you that you look up to, right? So it's like, why not? I mean, I, I've recommended this for years and just finally did it myself because I, whether psychologically, I, you know, afraid to be challenged by people, you know, people on my board and they may, right. may tell me that's a crazy idea or whatever. I'm not sure why, but now that I have one, it's they're, they're worth their weight in gold. And eventually, maybe it'd be a fiduciary. Right now, it's still not in our in our organization. But uh, we don't didn't, don't have a lot of shareholders. We're, we're gaining shareholders as we go forward. But my, you know, Cheryl and I have been the biggest shareholders, so we didn't quite have to do a fiduciary board. Yeah, you know, it, true. You don't have to. It, it, this, you know, my my opinion, and it, it, I think back to when I uh, when I started racing cars a little bit. Uh, you know, I bought a uh, Porsche Turbo that I had. You know, one of, one of my goals as a kid. You know, that I I cut out a picture of this black Porsche turbo and i had it pinned up all the way from college and i was just like you know i love this car i'm gonna get this card so one day you know i finally bought the car and i went down and i joined the audubon racetrack and i went down with jimmy and you know that's a whole nother story there but uh a uh i started racing the car i mean not like competitively yet but uh first thing i did you know i, I just beefed up the engine i you know, got it up to 600 horsepower and i put the uh i dropped it down and i put racing slicks on it and and i go to i go to get the next upgrade of speed and the guy looks at me and he's like dude you got enough speed you need brakes (laughs) (laughs) you guys you got to get some big brembo racing brakes because a lot of guys can drive fast straight you got to be able to hit the brakes in the corner and make it through 
and I kind of got that little like an anal- epiphany analogy that the business mm-hmm. is a lot like that. Yeah. Wow. That when times are good, I mean, how hard is it to keep your hand on the wheel straight and push the gas pedal down? Well, you have to be able to navigate the turns, and if you can have some foresight on the turns, it helps you a lot more. And and when you get old guys, you know, it's another Jewish saying that I've picked up from my friends over the years. It's like if if you don't have an old guy in the family or in the company, go rent one. You know, they'll because they'll they'll tell you. Yeah, they'll like you know, hey, they've seen it know, all happen. Yeah, Gary and I are old guys now, trying to tell you young guys that uh, I heard something the other day on the one of the news channels that kind of stuck with me and they were asking everybody's asking when's the next recession when's the next recession and this lady said uh she goes you know i can't tell you when the next recession is all i can tell you is we're one day closer Uh, (laughs) yeah you know it's it's coming so you have to be able to kind of figure out when do i take the foot off the gas and when do i start using the brake and downshift and to, to navigate these turns that are coming up so, so give us the give us the five minutes of of that, because I because again I was I was informed with you when you're going through all that, and and uh, uh, my heart went out for you at that time. I was like, wow, the, I'm, I saw so many people in your industry, uh, you know, out of business, going out of business, um, claiming bankruptcy, and my buddy Bill still hanging on, man, and I could see the frustration, the, you know, the 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 uh, impact it had in your life at the time, right? But man, you were determined. There was no quitting. There, it wasn't like you weren't going to get through this. You knew you were going to. It was just a matter of how. Right. So um, part of it is preparation. Again, knowing that there's a turn coming, and and that was a lot for my my board, uh, my elders, you know, people that had seen the seen the movie before. And uh, you know, I, I kind of remember I was I was actually on a YPO trip. I'm over in St. Petersburg, Russia, and we're we're at the bar at night in 2008. And this is when the stock market just is just crashing and just dropping. And people are, you know, we're all Americans there on this trip. And we're like, oh, my God, what is going on? And you have this little, not that you could really do anything, but when you're across the, you know, across the ocean and there's just a lot of tenseness and a lot of stress in the room. And so, you know, I get back and, again, luckily we had already started preparing. We had started deleveraging. We walked from deals. Uh, Got a lot of blowback from people in my organization saying, like, why are we dropping that deal? That's a great deal. And I'm just like, you know, hey, we're getting liquid. We're getting liquid. I, I don't – my, you know, mine and the board's call is we got to get cash. We got to get rid of our our bank loans. Um, my relatives have been through when the when the market goes south, you're not talking to the same guy at the bank. There's a guy in a room that you never met that says, "Bring all the money home," mm-hmm. and you're and that and the, some guy calls you up and he comes out that you had never met before. He's not your sales rep. He's not the guy that took you golfing or took you to lunch. He's the guy that says, "Pay me back." And they and if you don't, and, and every loan, no matter how much you negotiate it, and I've learned over the years, there's not much not much upside in trying to negotiate a bank loan too much you have to take the position i'm going to pay you back because there's always some caveat in there that if something happens all bets are off and you just got to pay me back absolutely so we had started already started paying back and we got to a point where i didn't owe a lot of money so that was the first 
thing. And what happened in our industry was there was this wave of bank fear pushed by the Fed, and then it just kind of created this frenzy of we got to get our money back. And the first thing the banks did was they said, we're, re- we're forcing you under article whatever, whatever, to reappraise all your property uh, and make sure that their loans are in balance. And what that means is if, if you had a million dollars worth of property and your loan said you could borrow 70%, you would have to put 300000 in and the bank would put 700000 well, they did this reappraisals, and these reappraisals for builders came back crazy. Mm-hmm. So the the million dollar property, they're now coming back at three four hundred thousand dollars. So the bank is saying, "All right, we'll still lend you seventy percent on the four hundred thousand. That's two hundred eighty grand." So they were lending you seven. Now they're lending you two eighty. So you got to pay them four hundred twenty thousand dollars by Friday. And that's basically the way it worked. And fortunately, we had delevered so much that we were in balance still. We didn't owe them any money. So <clears throat> so they were like, all right, that's great. We appreciate that, uh, but we're not going to renew. And so as of next March, we want our money. And this is like summer. And we're like, okay, well, I don't know if I can get all the, that money back by March. And then right at that same time, I had a, I had a group of banks uh, facility participating, and one of the banks failed and got seized by the FDIC. Oh. So I'm dealing, <coughs> I'm dealing with Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and the FDIC, who are all coming to my office wanting to know when they're getting their money back. Wow. And... <laughs> The, the positive thing is, uh, and one of the things that helped me in, in YPO was there was a YPO event down in Atlanta, and the guy who was the president for Bank of America uh, in the country on commercial loans who Home Builder fell under was giving a talk down there and kind of raised my hand <laughs> during the thing. And I said, so what if your borrower is in compliance all the loans in balance. Uh, how does that guy go about getting his loan extended? And uh, this guy, I think his name was Macklin, I think his name was. He said, well, my best bet to you would be sit down with your banker and tell them why it's in their best interest that they keep lending you money. So that's what I did. I hmm. got uh, my banks together and I said, okay, here's – I'm getting this direction from – one of your big wig bosses, and so uh, he, here's the way I see it. If you don't extend my loan, then you guys get to build the rest of my houses because they're already like halfway started. If you do extend my loan, I'll build the houses, and I'll pay you your money back. Hmm. So it's either you take on the work or you let me work for free for you. <laughs> and they're like, hmm, kind of like the second one. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, being a banker was pretty tough then, too. I mean, yeah. they were getting a lot of pressure from the Fed. A lot of people couldn't pay. How many there, homes did you have that there were, would it had to be finished at that point, Bill? Oh, we probably had three or 400 in progress. Holy cow. Yeah, in different cities. It fell that fast, huh? Yeah, and, and see, what happened was there were quite a few builders who were taking the 
who probably weren't in a position to negotiate like we were because we were in a good position and then basically tried to bluff the bank and go to B of A and said, no, I'm not paying you back. You know, you're, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. Mm-hmm. You're going to do this. And the bank of America said, I think so. No, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not, we're, we own everything that you have now. And, oh, uh, wow. you know, those are the guys that got cooked. So we were able to, you know, make a, a deal where they had to get the money. I said, okay, we got to get the money back by this date. That's it, Bill. Mm-hmm. You get six months or nine months, and we'll stay with you till then. So, and so then it was, okay, now I got still in the game. I got nine months. Wow. How do I how do I get this thing done in nine months? And the tough thing, I was dealing with the FDIC, too, and the FDIC was just, you know, dealing with a governmental regulation was it was 2009 10 what was that this is like 2000 yeah it's 2009 Mm -hmm. nine ish and you know so i'm I'm meeting with these guys i'm meeting with bank of america and i say look you guys gotta pay you gotta you gotta pay the rent you gotta pay the rent you gotta keep the lights on do you want to extend with me or do you want to go fight try to find who's always paid you back i've never missed a payment on anything ever you see my loan, mm-hmm. you you know we're transparent in our operations. You know what's going on, or do you want to stop replace you with somebody replace else me and have that. to go find somebody ah. that you don't even know? And the guys, like, you know, it's it must have stuck because they ended up sticking with us. So give us a give us a um, if you think of a, a graph, right? Where we it started basically zero in the early '90s, get to you know a thousand homes in in 2005 or six, whatever that was, Bill. And then where did you go to? 2008, 9, 10. Yeah. And then where have you gotten to today? And where do you want to be five years from now, let's say? I mean, so at the peak, we were, we were doing 1,000 houses a year. We had about 200 and some employees. And quickly it dropped to 100 and I think 180. We got down to 180 houses doing about 50 million. And I think we had 35 employees. Okay. And in a year and a half, yeah, it was. And so you know, we the the first thing was just survival. How do you survive? How do you keep? You know, main thing is how do you keep the the employees getting paid? You know, that's the that's job one. Mm-hmm. Keep the employees paid. If you don't pay the bank, they get pissed. They come. They rattle the cage. They tell you. This is all that, but if you don't pay somebody, then it's that they might not be able to pay their mortgage, and you know that I've never missed a payroll ever. I mean, I've not gotten paid sometimes, like in the early years, but I've always like my mm-hmm. number one thing is never miss payroll. Absolutely. And uh, subcontractors like the paving guy, you can kind of stretch out a little bit. But <laughs> we we felt that before, right? <laughs> but not your employees. <laughs> Okay, so so then yeah, so then so then where do you go to? Where, so we so we went all the way down to there, and then the first goal was we fought really hard to keep Phoenix open, uh, Tampa, Florida open, and you know Chicago, uh, Chicago, Milwaukee. Uh, we dropped Dallas and we dropped Cincinnati because you know we had to kind of lighten the load, but we what I call the there any Bulls fans in here, the triangle offense. Oh, yeah. You know, we had Chicago, Tampa, Phoenix, and we were going to stick with that triangle offense, and that's how we were going to 
come out of this. And so, you know, basically what we did, and we just worked hard and worked cheap. You know, the first thing was how do we, how do we make a dollar building a house? Because at the time, if you had the land for free and you build a house, you would probably lose 30 grand. That that was the business model. So we kind of got into the teardown business and we tried remodeling. You know, we tried like some, some things and just for cash flow, just uh, mm-hmm. tread water. So it was tread water, survive, and then the first milestone was get back to $100 million in revenue. And, and we picked $100 million because we had the multiple offices and we kind of needed that revenue base to make sense of keeping our structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once we got to that, now the next uh, milestone is to get back to the peak. $250 million in revenue, uh, we're hoping to get that by 2020. We'll probably, I mean, it's it's not completely out of the question, but it's going to be tight. We're probably two years out on that, and we're this year. I think we'll do about 500 houses, and houses are more expensive now, so it makes that sure. revenue a little easier. But we'll do about 160 million. Okay. Hmm. So, I mean, th- think about, I mean, small businesses, people that people in small businesses that, that have a hard time through tough times and, and you know, that, that, that same graph we're looking at for Bill, it's a small business, big business, doesn't matter. The same risk for, for you is the same risk that small business, you know, very small business owner takes. It's just, you know, bigger numbers and, and bigger losses or bigger gains. Um, you know what I mean? You, you, you think, of, you know, William Ryan Holmes, this huge organization, they don't, they don't struggle. They're, you know, they're, they're going to get through all these tough times. It's no big deal, but it's... It's no easier. It's actually it can be a lot tougher, right? Yeah. And what and what I was saying offline is, um, you know, hearing this gives I think a lot of people the proactive approach to understand that, you know, this doesn't change. It's all part of it. So it's all about being emotionally stable. I've said that before, but understanding that this is part of the game. Mm-hmm. Like you, this is part of the game that you're playing, and just you have to be okay with it being okay. But like you said, have that cheat code. You right. know, so that's pretty good. I have the cheat code, and I, I, I joke a lot that I use a lot of sports analogies as a you know leader in, in my business, and it's it's that same thing. If you're if you're playing you know pee wee football, it's you, you got to do this. Or if you're playing in the NFL, it's you know a lot of things. You know the the the, the, same, the, the same salaries are higher. The uh, the products more refined and better, but at the end of the day, it's you got offense, you got defense, you got have to have good plays, you have to have good good coaching. You you're gonna go against somebody who's pretty close in, uh, you know, close close in skills that you are. That's gonna want to knock you on your butt. And it's, so di- different league, same game, right? Yeah. Whether it's small business to big business, um, whether it's sport sport analogy, yeah. right? Yeah, and um, actually, you know. Our business, businesses like ours that don't have huge barriers to entry, I mean, we work on low margins. Like e- even in the good times, they're they're single digits. And the last, I mean, the last ten years, we've probably averaged around like three percent pre-tax. So we're, mm-hmm. you know, I tell my, and we, we should be around seven, but again, the, the, the business is pretty tough. Mm-hmm. So I got to tell my employees, you know, guys, we're working for three or four pennies. You know, you, you can't, you know, just be lollygagging and you can't be complacent. It's it's game on all the time. 
and that, and that's with you know bill i know your business you're constantly you know striving to differentiate yourself i mean you're not just you're not letting yourself be commoditized but the industry is tough because you get you, you just just like any fragmented industry you got people that can jump in not understanding their overhead in and in, in a short business life of on average a few years in our like let's say residential paving residential building Many people aren't in business for more than a few years, and it's because they don't understand their overhead. So you're dealing with that as competitors. So you, so you, it lowers the bar, lowers lowers the, the competitive number you have to be at to compete with those people. Even though they're not they're not making money, they're losing money. You're still you're still somebody to compete with. So you can differentiate as much as you possibly can to separate yourself. But they're still out there, right? Yeah, and and you have to grow every year because. Your employees want raises every year. Everybody wants uh, an opportunity to move up in the organization, mm-hmm. or most people do. So there's a lot of pressure on the top line to grow. And the bigger you get, okay, now if, you know what's growing five percent on ten million versus five percent on a hundred million versus five percent on a billion. I mean, mm-hmm. you, it's it's just that risk. Double down, double down, double down. Right. So let's uh, let's let's uh, talk about a couple more things here. Um, one one thing you met, you mentioned one of your one of your mentors, Big Jim. So he, he's one of my mentors as well, and 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 we have another uh, gentleman that we uh, friend mutual friend of ours that mentioned Big Jim, right? How how are you going to be looked upon like a Big Jim, right? And I and I know you will be because I know you and your personality and, and the people you're out you're raising your hand to help and mentor and all that. But where do you see your your biggest uh, uh, legacy when it comes to people looking at Bill Ryan and say, man, I remember Bill gave me that Billism that time, and man, it, it took me to a different level. Or, well, I watched Bill go through this, and man, I, I learned a lot because he shared with me how he got through that tough time, right? Um, who, do you, who do you look upon that? Who, who, do you, who do you mentor today that you think will look that way like uh, to you like we we all do of, of Jim and, and many others, our, our, our fathers and so on, right? Yeah. So a little bit, it kind of reminds me of my second mentor, Jim Ryan is in the psychology. So there's a there's a test that says, okay, you got to close your eyes and you're wearing a sweatshirt. It says something on the front and it says something on the back, and you kind of kind of visualize what it says on the front and what it says on the back. And the exercise is well, what it says on the front is kind of the way that you want other people to perceive you, and the what it says on the back is the way you perceive yourself. And mine has been mine. Mine was on the front was my college, you know, Marquette Warriors, and on the back was the number ten. And so through discussions with my uncle, it came to be like I see myself as quarterback, you know, of the team. I'm not, you know, I I don't make a good golfer because I do better in a team environment. You know, it's, maybe it's a little bit of my background with the Irish, and you know, they would always have this saying, you know, don't get too big for your britches, there, Sonny. Yeah. You know, and it, it just, but being part of a team really drives me. And but, yeah, you know, I want to be the leader. I want to be the quarterback. Yeah. It's just kind of the way I'm wired. <laughs> and uh, so, part of the big gym and the mentoring, uh, one of the things that I took away from the uh, emotional intelligence, there's four pillars of mental well-being, and it's self-knowledge, self-management, social knowledge, relationship management. And so for self-knowledge, you know, you really have to be honest with yourself and what you're good at, what you're not. Um, at the end of the day, we're, you know, I have a personal, my, my core is mutual respect, 
individual accountability. And so I try to drive that with what I can bring in business and what my experience is to whomever. Mm-hmm. And hopefully someday, you know, people, well, what I'll feel good, like I want as a, as a mentor, and I, I do like the concept of being a mentor, is that, you know, hey, I learned this from Bill, and I'm fine with them saying, and he learned it from somebody else. He stole it from, you know, I don't really care about that. But part of that win is a, any good quarterback mm-hmm. wants to be part of the win. And as a mentor, what charges me is being able to see either – a budding executive and somebody in my team or a friend or something that, hey, I gave them a little little couple of ahas that they're like, hey, that, that kind of helped them or, or made the journey a little bit easier, a little more fun because mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's got to be fun too. There's got to be fun days. I can guarantee not all of them are going to be fun, but you, you know you got to be got to be positive about the game. And who, who, who is it? People on your team today, or is it people outside that ask for mentorship? Where, where have you given the best, to, or where have you spent the time? I guess that 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 might parlay into success for somebody else. Uh, I I try I try to have the role in my organization as being that person. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of try to do a lot of teaching moments, and I, I use a lot of my Uncle Jimisms and Big Jimisms. <laughs> Uh, along that, because it's you know it it like sticks you know it, people can kind of in all the stuff that's Absolutely. going on in their world if you you know if you remember the submarine you know it's it's just a little bit easier to remember than me reading a paragraph, but and also like I said I did the uh, uh, YPO preparing for preparing for professional life, and I start every one of those off. You're on a journey. One thing God gave you is your journey and your journey's yours and that you know hopefully it won't all be good because if it's all good you got cheated yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. (laughs) and then but your journey your life's journey is god's gift to you and uh you know make the best with it you do a great job of you you asked some heavyweight friends to come in on that one too before i know and uh, Mm -hmm. you do you do a great job of that I've i've been around to watch bill and now he how he runs that org- that uh, youth YPO organization. Do good. Are you doing it this year? Uh, no, in three years and you're out there. Like oh, really? They, new they blood. They you out. New blood. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So. Well, you can always be a true mentor. You know. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, uh, man, I got some good, good, true takeaways. Speaking of that, man, you, you. Um, you definitely got some isms mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, um, and I just got started. Yeah. <laughs> um, hard work is the cheat code of life for success. I mean, I've never heard that. And the way that you talked about it, I was like, oh, man, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, repetition builds habits and habits build culture, culture. which is extremely true. Uh, and then the one thing that I think, uh, you know, we even say in uh, True Mentor, so it's good to hear you even say that, that you need to understand the value of a network. And we believe your network equals your net worth. So that's extremely key as well. When starting a biz, don't when starting a business, do not be afraid to live in the gray area. That was awesome. Hutzpah. Hutzpah. Uh, absolutely. Hutzpah. <laughs> um, you must know how to art, uh, how to articulate what the point of the game is. You know, it's funny. A lot of if you think of that, a lot of people, oh, I want to learn how to dribble. I want to learn how to dribble. Mm-hmm. What's the point of playing basketball is getting the ball into the hoop. Right. And that's kind of the whole mindset of it. Everyone makes mistakes. You just need to clean up your own mess. Mm-hmm. You know, being, oh, this was good. Being fast is good. Knowing when to break and navigate 
navigate is much better. Right. And that was awesome. Invest, um, in, invest in a big set of brakes. Yeah, we go. If you, if you want to go fast, you better have a big set of brakes or you're yeah. going to be in a ditch. Yeah. And then, um, and I think this was good too. You know, the triangle offense works even in building homes. It's so, like, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then obviously the last one I have on here, if you don't have an old guy in, in, in the family, you must rent one. So uh, <laughs> I'm so grateful that uh, my quote unquote old guy is Gary. Yeah. You know, so he's old enough outside of my grandfather. You so got, you got an awesome grandfather. Yeah, too. man. So, That's but now I appreciate it, man. This was really good, really insightful uh, because again, I think a lot of people and I know a lot of people that be on the, that's going to hear this podcast a lot of them that I know, they are in, oh, man, I think I need to get in real estate. Oh, I need to start building homes. And um, I think this podcast specifically is going to help them out tremendously to understand, yes, there's these. this is the good, but here's also the bad, and this is the mindset, and, and um, here's the culture of it. And your mindset is amazing. Bill, so I was glad I was being on it. Thank you. One, one more thing I want to mention is you know, that your story is a true American story. It's a great American free enterprise story. And I, and I love you know, questioning my, my friends, you know, on this subject, right? It, you know, America and this this free enterprise journey you've had. What what's your thoughts on that? Could you have done it somewhere else? Could you have done it in China, India, Russia, or anywhere else? Right, all the places you've traveled oh. across the world. No, of course, and I mean, and that's that's why you know, being a family of immigrants as we are, the Irish, that that this this country is so great. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't want to sidetrack on too much current policy, but we we got to get our immigration program back uh, if nothing else that there's not a lot of american kids that want to be nailing shingles on uh, houses in arizona in the summer i can't find enough workers right and and, I, and how about uh, regulation and, and that those type of things i mean again in in a free enterprise system you you hope that it's built for people to to build businesses right to be yeah. uh not not to be re- restricting you know the free enterprise system, as as many countries have have become with their with their forms of of uh, government, right? Which, yeah, I've got it, my you know that one of my my core values, and that's you know mutual respect, individual accountability. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know that that people need people have the opportunity to take care of themselves, and as long as they do, you know they should, and that's kind of what that's what America gives you. I mean, America gives you that roadmap, and it's scary sometimes, and it's there's no guarantees. But uh, you know, the rewards, even if even if you don't become the biggest builder in the country, you know, you're you're in a game, and and you're in a game that can pay you well and give you really good uh, self worth. Uh, and there's there's no other country that that you can do it in. I agree. Well, thanks for everything, buddy. I mean, it's uh, it's been awesome. I really appreciate you being here, and, and I, I I know your story. I I, I got some other nuggets of uh, of billisms and and, mm-hmm. and stuff that I, I I probably either didn't remember or I, or I, or I didn't hear. But uh, you're an awesome guy, and your your story is a great one. So I appreciate you being here, allowing us to tell it today to thank you, Gary. To the masses, buddy. And we'll see you all on the next episode of Ditch Diggers CEO. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo.com.
and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. We're blessed to build a business in America where soldiers fight for our freedom every day. Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck rolling down highway. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans, then I became the CEO.